Yeah? Okay. Well, as I intimated before the break, St. Thomas does not only think of humanity in terms of our nature, or even just in terms of natural and supernatural, he also thinks of human nature with a journey and a goal, existing in various different conditions or states over time. It's the same human nature in each state, but its condition is different somehow on account of the supernatural. The ultimate state is heaven, the beatific vision, and St. Thomas comes to see this as a full supernatural sharing in the divine nature enjoyed by the human saint, just as 1 Peter 1.4 speaks of participants or sharers in the divine nature. We saw before the break how the original state or condition of human beings set them up as ordered or orientated by an initial sharing in the divine nature, the seed of supernatural grace, towards the fullness of the heavenly supernatural end. This revealed from the very beginning the goodness of human nature and how it was made for a supernatural end. However, this journey was made more complicated by the detour of sin. So in between these original and final states, there come the state of the sinner, in which original righteousness has been lost, and then the state of justification, where supernatural grace is restored through Jesus Christ. And human nature is now reorientated back towards its final goal. So there are four main historic states of human nature in all. I want to say something now about how the relationship between supernatural grace and human nature differs now from the relationship that St. Thomas held existed before the fall. I'll first say something about the fallen state or condition where grace is lost. I'll talk about that first. And that will help us to see something about the condition of the just where grace is restored. On St. Thomas's view, when the state of original righteousness was lost by the introduction of sin into the world, human nature was left behind, all basically still there. None of the basic constituents of human nature was lost. After the fall, human beings still had a material body and an immaterial soul, with all the same natural powers, intellect, will, and all the rest. It's all still there, and human beings are still basically human, with the same human nature. However, St. Thomas doesn't think that human nature survived intact. It was all there, but in a damaged state. Imagine if your body were wounded. Your body would no longer be intact, undamaged, but it wouldn't have been totally corrupted. Your body is still there. 
but in a wounded state, able to suffer and die. Likewise, St. Thomas thought that human nature survived the fall, but only in a damaged state, out of kilter, out of balance, and able to suffer and die. This means that the good lost by the fall is twofold. First, there is the loss of all the supernatural gifts that elevated the first human beings above their nature. But secondly, there was the damage done to human nature as a result of the loss of supernatural gifts. St. Thomas sums up his view of the damage done to human nature as a lessening or diminishing of its natural inclination to virtue, towards perfection. St. Thomas thinks that it's part of human nature for human beings to be inclined to virtue. Virtue, after all, brings human nature to perfection. And so human nature, being naturally inclined to its own perfection, is naturally inclined to virtue. What happens at the fall is that this natural inclination to virtue is diminished or lessened. It doesn't go away entirely because it's part of human nature and human nature stays. The inclination to virtue then stays. However, it's damaged in the sense that this inclination is no longer as strong as it was. Our inclination to virtue is weakened and our inclination to sin is stronger. Whereas before the fall, human beings like all creatures were naturally able to love God above all things in their own particular way, according to the particular nature they possessed. The damage done to nature means that they were now more inclined to pursue their own private good at the expense of any wider good. So while the state of original righteousness had maintained a balance within human nature, a right ordering, the fall meant the loss of this delicate balance and order and harmony. St. Thomas works all this out in terms of four wounds to human nature, namely ignorance, what he calls malice, concupiscence, and weakness or infirmity. Each wound is connected by St. Thomas to a different part of human nature, where there should be virtue, but as a result of the fall, there are gaps within human nature where virtue really ought to be. The first power of human nature he considers is intellect or reason, which has truth as its object, and ought to be perfected, St. Thomas thinks, by, among other things, the virtue of prudence or good sense, so that we would be equipped to make good moral decisions. According to St. Thomas's view of things, what we have as a result of the first sin is damage to human reason's ordering towards truth. Right order has been damaged, 
such that we have the wound of ignorance in our intellects. This does not mean that sinners have altogether lost their minds and that the light of their intellects has been entirely removed. It is not a case that all intellectual light is lost and that there is only darkness in the mind. We all know from our experience of night and day that there are degrees of darkness and light. What St. Thomas seems to be saying is that the mind is darkened as a result of sin, but not completely in the dark. Thus, we may lack knowledge for our practical moral decisions. We may lack knowledge of what the ultimate end of humanity is and so on. This is known as the wound of ignorance. Next in his consideration of human nature comes the power of will, which has the good as its proper object, just as intellect has truth as its object. Ideally for St. Thomas, the will would be perfected, say, by the virtue of justice. This justice is not the, quite the same as the complete balance in the first human beings, which we mean by the phrase original justice. Instead, justice refers here to that virtue by which we give others what is due to them. However, what we have as a result of original sin, the fall, is a wound to the will where the virtue of justice ought to be. This wound is known as malice. Again, this malice is not the particular sin of malice by which we act maliciously. Rather, by malice, St. Thomas means a general proclivity towards evil in the will. As a result of the fall, the human will, a power that belongs to human nature, is damaged in such a way that human beings are prone to will evil. So while sinners have the wound of ignorance in their reason or intellect, they have the wound of malice in their wills. Apart from these two higher powers of the soul, intellect and will, St. Thomas also has something to say about the passions in the lower part of the soul. Many of them we would identify in modern terms as emotions or we might say feelings. St. Thomas sees these as divided into two, what he calls the concupiscible appetite and the irascible appetite. The concupiscible passions are those which in principle direct us to our good and away from what is not good for us. An example of this would be our experience of desire. The irascible passions are those to do with when it gets difficult for us in our pursuit of a good or avoiding an evil. An example of this would be fear or perhaps a feeling of hope. Now, St. Thomas thinks that both the concupiscible appetite and the irascible appetite need perfecting by virtue. And it's the job of temperance to regulate our desires and the job of fortitude 
to regulate passions such as fear. However, what comes as a result of the fall is a wound in each of these sets of passions. In the case of the irascible passions, the irascible appetite is wounded in terms of its ability to help people face up with strength to what is difficult. This wound is known as weakness or infirmity. And in the case of the concupiscible passions, the concupiscible appetite is wounded in terms of its ability to keep us balanced with regard to pleasure. This wound is traditionally known as concupiscence. Through these four wounds, then, human nature is damaged in different interrelated ways, and we have a loss of that delicate balance and harmony that supernatural grace gave humanity before the fall. From being in a state of harmony and balance, the human beings are now out of harmony and balance, not only with God and wider creation, but even among and within themselves. This is the picture of humanity we have from Genesis 3 onwards. The upshot of this is that the human need for grace becomes more complex than it was before the fall. Earlier we saw how human nature needs grace because of its finitude. Because it is created, human nature has limitations. Now a second reason for needing grace has arrived, sin. The first reason stays because our human nature stays with all its finitude. But it is now damaged as well, and fallen human beings do not have the power to repair themselves. Their healing requires a supernatural gift of grace to come from above nature, to restore human nature and redirect it back towards God. This then gives grace two roles, two functions, corresponding to the two things that make humanity need grace. The two points of need are finitude and sin, and the two roles of grace are to elevate and to heal. Grace elevates us above the limitations of our nature, and now it also heals our nature of sin. I'm not saying that human nature needed grace more after the fall than it did before. Humanity needed grace 100% before the fall because it had been called to a supernatural goal. It's just that grace now does more things, does more things for us by healing our nature as well as elevating it to God. St. Thomas had a much broader picture of supernatural grace overall than I can present today, including God moving us graciously so that we act graciously in such a way that we deserve heaven. However, I'm going to concentrate on just one aspect of this wider picture, 
what Catholics often call sanctifying grace. St. Thomas calls this stable gift the gift of grace that makes us pleasing to God. He thinks that when we come to love someone or something, our love is stirred up by some goodness that is already present or seems to be present in that someone or something. The good is already there, it pleases us and evokes our love. With God, however, it is the other way around. When God loves something, he places the goodness there. At the root of this goodness that God places in us is the gift of sanctifying grace. And rooted in that grace are a whole series of virtues and gifts that bring a certain perfection to our human nature and order it towards the ultimate perfection of heaven. St. Thomas sees the different supernatural gifts of grace as perfecting different parts of the soul. Among these supernatural gifts are the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, supernatural habits which dispose our intellects and wills to act well in regard to God and be united to him. St. Thomas also thinks that there are, are a whole panoply of further moral virtues which are supernaturally infused into the soul, into the souls of the justified, along with the theological virtues, helping us to act in all the different dimensions of Christian living. None of those is exactly equivalent to the gift of sanctifying grace. Some of them can even remain if we commit a mortal sin and are no longer in a state of grace. Many of them give a share in God's life in their own particular ways. Faith, which according to St. Thomas perfects our minds, gives a participation in God's knowledge. Charity, which perfects our wills, or we might say our hearts, gives a supernatural participation in God's love. If we went through all the virtues and gifts, we would find that none of them quite corresponds, however, to a participation in God's nature. 2 Peter 1.4 speaks about participation in the divine nature. And that's precisely what St. Thomas thinks the gift of sanctifying grace is. But if faith brings a certain perfection to human nature by perfecting the intellect in this life, and charity brings a certain perfection to human nature by perfecting the will, we might start to wonder how the gift of sanctifying grace perfects human nature exactly. Is there some other human power that grace perfects? While St. Thomas locates faith in the power of intellect and charity in the power of the will, he locates the gift of sanctifying grace not in another power, but in what he calls the essence of the soul. 
he thinks of something's powers, such as the power to know and the power to will, as lying somehow in between its actual operations of knowing and loving and what he calls the soul's essence, which is how he speaks of the very core or basis of the soul. St. Thomas distinguishes in this way between the human soul's essence and its powers. The soul's essence is not the same thing as its powers or capacities, and no power of the soul exhausts its essence. According to St. Thomas, no capacity of a creature can be absolutely identified with what that creature is. This means that the soul's power to know, for example, is not what the soul basically is at bottom at its core. His argument for this is that the soul is always something actual. It's a realized reality, not something that only potentially exists. The soul is actual. And yet the powers of the soul are not always actual. We're only actually knowing when we're actually making an act of knowledge. The rest of the time, we're only knowing potentially, such as when we are asleep. But given that the soul is always actual and its powers are not always actual, we cannot identify the soul absolutely with any one of its powers or even with all of them. The soul is more than the sum of its capacities. And so St. Thomas comes to think in terms of there being a deeper level to the soul than any of its capacities. And he thinks of these powers as being rooted in what he calls the essence of the soul. All the powers then have a certain unity are powers of the same soul because they all flow from a common root in the soul's essence. I want you to imagine the soul in your minds as though it were kind of like a tree where the root or the trunk is the soul's essence and the soul's powers are branches rooted in the soul's essence. Think of the power to know and the power to will as two special branches having their common root in the soul's essence. Now, if St. Thomas is right about this picture of human nature and the soul is more than the sum of its powers, then we might want to think of the supernatural perfection of the human being in this life as covering the whole of the soul, its essence, as well as its powers. So as the virtue of faith is one of the gifts that perfects the power of intellect, and charity is one of the gifts that perfects the power of will, so the gift of sanctifying grace will be what perfects the very essence of the soul. And as faith, which perfects the intellect, is a participation in God's knowledge, and charity, which perfects the will, is a participation in God's love. 
So the gift of sanctifying grace is a participation in God's nature, making us, in the words of 2 Peter 1.4, sharers in the divine nature. Sanctifying grace in the essence of the soul gives us who are human by nature a supernatural sharing in the divine nature. So St. Thomas thinks of the gift of sanctifying grace as the root source of all the other supernatural gifts of grace. I want you then to imagine these gifts of grace in your mind as like a second tree, where the root or trunk of the tree is the gift of sanctifying grace. And rooted in this grace are various branches, faith and charity and all the other supernatural gifts. So I'm asking you now to imagine two trees, one standing for human nature and the other for the various gifts of grace we've been talking about. The first tree has the essence of the soul as its root or trunk, and its branches include the powers of intellect and will. And the second tree has the gift of sanctifying grace as its root or trunk, with its branches including faith and charity. Now imagine that, miraculously, the second tree is placed inside the first tree, interior to it. In fact, the second tree never exists on its own, but only ever really exists when it's inside the first tree. Grace is not a standalone reality, a substance, but is a perfection of a standalone reality within the human being who receives the quality of grace. So we now have the virtue of faith inside the intellect and the virtue of charity inside the will, and below them both, we have the gift of sanctifying grace inside the essence of the soul. Each of these gifts is perfecting human nature in some way, but all the others are rooted in the basic gift of sanctifying grace, which perfects the basic essence of the soul. On this view, the whole mystery of grace permeates the whole of the human soul because its very root, the gift of sanctifying grace, inheres in the very essence of the soul, elevating us above the limitations of our nature to share in the divine nature. That, at any rate, is St. Thomas's picture of grace-perfecting nature. I now want to say something of how he argues for it from how natural virtues relate to human nature. The natural virtues, St. Thomas says, things like courage, justice, and so on, dispose us to act well with regard to our own human nature. Every natural virtue we can acquire disposes us to act well with regard to our own nature. This is not, however, how St. Thomas sees supernatural virtues like faith and charity. They too dispose us to act in some way, faithfully and lovingly, 
but not so much with regard to our own human nature primarily. Remember how faith and charity raise us above our natural powers as participations in God's knowledge and love. So instead of supernatural virtues disposing us to act in accord just with our own human nature, they more dispose us to act in accord with something higher than our own human nature. So what higher thing do they dispose us to act in accord with if it's not with our human nature? St. Thomas's answer is that these supernatural virtues dispose us to act in accordance with a participation in the divine nature. So if these supernatural virtues are to work for us and in us, we also need a participation in the divine nature for them to work in accordance with, just as the natural virtues work in accordance with our own human nature. So what's the participation in the divine nature that the supernatural virtues work in accord with? Well, it is, of course, the gift of sanctifying grace in the essence of the soul. The supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and so on, help us to live in accordance with our gracious participation in the divine nature. And thinking of this supernatural grace as a kind of light, St. Thomas compares it with our natural light of reason. Now, our human nature gives us the light of reason, quite apart from and prior to the natural virtues we can acquire. Likewise, St. Thomas supposes that there is also this light of sanctifying grace somehow prior to the supernatural virtues that God gives us. As the natural virtues presuppose the light of reason that comes with our nature, so the supernatural virtues presuppose a light of grace, which St. Thomas identifies with our participation in the divine nature, the gift of sanctifying grace. Just as the natural virtues enable us to live in accord with our human nature, so the supernatural virtues enable us to live in accord with this grace of participation in the divine nature. This reinforces St. Thomas's vision of the gift of sanctifying grace as the deepest root of the soul's supernatural elevation to God, so that not only our powers to know and love, but the very depths of the soul that unite them are also permeated by this elevation, so that we share at root in God's divine nature as from that root, we also share in his life of knowledge and love. Now, this whole picture of grace applies to human nature both before and after the fall. But after the fall, there is a difference, namely that this grace and everything rooted in it heals us of sin as well as elevating us above our finitude. But there is also another key difference, 
the difference between the state of the one justified by grace after the fall, who has their sin forgiven, and the state of original justice before the fall. We only need to consider ourselves who live a Christian life to see that one difference is that we do not have those other gifts from before the fall, such as immortality or integrity, which gave a harmony of soul and body, mind and passions in the original state. St. Thomas comes to see that in the initial state of the first human beings, these gifts followed on from sanctifying grace as a package, so to speak. But in our state, they do not, and we may well wonder why not. St. Thomas makes sense of this in terms of his basic distinction in God's plan for us between journey and destination, and the fundamental distinction in human nature between body and soul. God begins our restoration in this life with the healing of our souls. And it then in the next life at the journey's end, completes it with the healing of our bodies. Christ has conquered both sin and death by his cross and resurrection. But we see the working out of this victory in two stages, corresponding to the two stages of journey and arrival. We see the defeat of sin now through our justification, the forgiveness of our sins. And then we see the defeat of death in the next life through the resurrection. St. Thomas speaks about justification as a resurrection in this life too, but as a resurrection of our souls, they're being raised up from sin by grace which is completed at the end of time by the resurrection of our bodies in glory. Bodily immortality is to be restored to us as the goal of a journey in which our souls are already restored to friendship with God now through grace, and humanity has a second chance to journey to God. This explains why many of the gifts had by grace before the fall are not had by grace after the fall, and why we still have to struggle with our own concupiscence, our inner inclination to sin, as our nature is healed gradually. We have a journey towards a more perfect immortality, more perfect than the first one, because it cannot be lost. And towards a more perfect integrity, that cannot be lost. And we make this journey by way of conformity to the crucified and risen Christ in this life. We do not yet share his immortality by some special gift, but rather, as St. Paul says, we share in his sufferings so that we can ultimately share in his glory. It is by sharing in the sanctifying grace of Christ crucified that we can journey to share in his glory, whereas the apocalypse says, there will be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, nor pain.
what remains for eternity will be human nature at its final fulfillment, where the intellect is yet further supernaturally elevated to see God as he really is, to see his essence. And the will is then elevated to a perfect love that delights in God forever. That was all I could think of to say about grace and nature before and after the fall in the time available. And I've probably gone over the time available. But there's an opportunity now for questions and discussion.